Okay. Hello, welcome to the Sport Professor Podcast, the show for the sports student and fan who wants to learn more about the underpinnings of the sporting world. I'm your professor, Dr. Drew Sikansky, and today we will continue our discussion of antitrust law in sport as we deep dive the history of the NCA and their antitrust legal battles. Beginning with a brief recap of the Sherman Antitrust Act and the history of the NCA, we will then move to break down the numerous lawsuits that have been filed against the Collegiate Athletic Association claiming they're in violation of antitrust law. We will focus both on times when the NCA's practices have been judged to be a restriction on free trade and thus illegal, and on situations in which their bylaws and rules have been found to restrict free trade but preserve a competitive marketplace and thus be legal. The goal of such analysis being to identify the legal precedent that may be applied to current legal discussions centered on paying college athletes. So, if you ever wondered if it's legal for the NCAA to ban universities from appearing on TV or playing in postseason competitions, or if the NCAA can legally restrict the movement of players from one university to the other, then this is the podcast for you. So just sit back, relax, and enjoy this episode of the Sport Professor Podcast. Today, I want to continue the discussion of antitrust law that we started in the last episode of the Sport Professor Podcast. Now, for those of you who might not have listened to that episode entitled Sport Law, The History of Antitrust Laws in Sport, I would highly recommend you go back and listen to it. But just in case you didn't, or just in case you forget what we discussed, in that episode, we introduced something called the Sherman Antitrust Act of 1890. In doing so, we provided a historical setting and background what was going on in America at that time that led to the passage of this antitrust law? We then looked at a number of cases that challenged the monopolistic practices of major sport leagues in America, including leagues like Major League Baseball, the National Football League, and Major League Soccer. Throughout all that conversation, though, we purposefully left out the bevy of antitrust lawsuits that have been filed against one of the major sport organizations in the United States the National Collegiate Athletic Association, or NCAA. Why do we exclude these from our first conversation? Well, because there's so many lawsuits and so much important legal discussion involving the NCAA and its standing within antitrust legislation that we felt the only way that we could truly explain what is going on and how current lawsuits might affect the future of college sports is to give the NCAA its own separate antitrust episode. But before we dive into those specific lawsuits and start to discuss how they might affect the future of college sport, we need to first provide a quick recap of the Sherman Antitrust Act and discuss a little bit about the history of the NCA. Doing both of these will allow us to better understand the origins of the lawsuits and the actions that the court took. So let's begin with a brief review of the Sherman Antitrust Act of 1890. Remember from our last podcast, the act was passed by the United States Congress in response to the growth of massive companies that controlled various marketplaces. These include companies like U.S. Steel and Standard Oil, companies that were so big that they could run other smaller companies out of business or just go and buy them up and then 
with no competition, they could completely control the pricing of goods and services being sold to the American people. For example, U.S. Steel became so big with so few competitors that not only did they control the steel market, but they controlled the transportation market for getting the steel across the country. They controlled the mining for iron ore, which was needed to produce and make steel, and various other sectors they also controlled. Without any competition, they could set prices as high as they wanted, and people who needed steel to build railroads, machines, or buildings, they had no choice but to pay the asking price. As other companies like this continued to grow and develop monopolies on various goods and products, Congress realized that lack of competition in the marketplace might be good for businesses, but it was drastically harming the consumer. Since a free and capitalistic society is based in part on competition in the marketplace, which in and of itself helps protect the consumer by forcing companies to compete with competitive pricing, it rewards innovative ideas and products and forces companies to treat the consumer fairly and honestly. Since that is all needed in this capitalistic society in which we live, the federal government passed the Sherman Antitrust Act in 1890 with the goal of outlawing and breaking up trusts and monopolies. If we pull back the curtains on the Sherman Antitrust Act, we'll see that it's actually broken up into three distinct sections, two of which are important to know and understand when assessing legal challenges in the field of sport. Beginning with Section 1, the Act prohibits, quote, every contract combination or conspiracy in restraint of trade or commerce among the several states, end quote. In other words, it bans activities that place unreasonable restraints on trade, whether that be the forming of a trust or companies staying separate legally, but getting together and working to fix prices to make sure no one company is charging less for an item. Any activities like this that are unreasonably restricting trade, that are not allowing the market to work against each other to determine a price point, are violations of Section 1. For example, Section 1 makes it illegal for AT&T and Verizon phone companies to call each other and have a conversation and agree that they will not charge anyone less than $1,000 a month for a cell phone bill. That would be considered an unreasonable restraint on trade in the form of price fixing because it is the companies in this example that have come together to set a price rather than allowing the open and free market to determine what that price should be. Section 2 of the Act makes it illegal to, quote, monopolize, attempt to monopolize, or combine or conspire to monopolize. Here, a monopoly, quote, refers to when a company and its product offerings dominate a sector or industry, end quote. Monopolies are seen as bad because they bring about a lack of competition, which in turn leads to higher costs for consumers, inferior products or services, and corrupt behavior by businesses since there's no one around to challenge them and keep them honest. Now, when we're assessing if a violation of the Sherman Antitrust Act has occurred, the courts will weigh what they call the anti-competitive effects of a company or a rule in question against the pro-competitive benefits for the consumer. By that, we mean that the courts will look to see if there's any benefit to the action that is being done or challenged, and they'll determine if that benefit outweighs the harm that is being done. 
The courts can do this in three different ways, using what's called the rule of reason, the illegal per se standard, or the quick look rule of reason. Each of these approaches is slightly different, and I would encourage you to go back and listen to our last podcast to understand the exact scenarios when each would be used. But for this podcast, all you need to know is that each of these approaches, in their own way, compares the pro-competitive benefits to the anti-competitive effects. They just do it slightly differently. There you have it. A quick recap of the Sherman Antitrust Act, a summarization of Section 1 and Section 2 of the law, and an overview of how they determine whether a violation has occurred. While in our past podcast, we talked about challenges to law and professional sport, it's important to note that over the last 50 years, the National Collegiate Athletic Association, or NCA, has become a prime target in sport for antitrust lawsuits. To understand why, though, we first need to understand a bit more about the history of college sport and the NCAA. If you go all the way back to our very first podcast, we actually provide an in-depth review of the origins and history of the NCA. And if you haven't, I would encourage you to go back and listen to that pod. But just in case you haven't listened to it, or in case you forgot what you learned in it since it was so long ago, I want to take a second and provide a brief overview of how the NCA came about and how it grew into its current structure. To do this, we actually have to go back to before the NCA even began and go all the way to the 1700s. Why then? Because back in the late 1700s, colleges in the United States were actually completely devoid of sports and extracurricular activities. The purpose of college was solely to educate those students who went to them and help them develop sound morals. So students during the week would literally go to class, go to the dining hall for meals, go to evening prayers, and then go to the dorms for a bit of study time and maybe a little bit of time to spend with friends. Sports was seen as a distraction to this schedule and to students' learning, so faculty and university presidents kept it from the day-to-day life of students. However, this created some issues. As historian Guy Lewis noted, the strict schedule and the lack of physical outlets for students made individuals grow restless, and they began acting out against the faculty and university in what was labeled campus disorder. As issues grew worse, universities decided they needed to provide activities to help students find healthy outlets for their pent-up energy. This was the beginning of college sports, and even though the physical activities or training that was provided resembled much more of what we would think of today as aerobics or gymnastics, you know, basic forms of stretching and movements in large groups, it began to shift how universities viewed these types of extracurricular activities as universities started to not only offer these specialized classes and forms of training, but also set aside land for the activities to take place on, and even build gymnasiums so they could house those activities inside. The only problem? The students weren't that interested in the activities the universities presented. They wanted more traditional ball sports incorporated into the physical training, and so in the 1840s, the students took it upon themselves to start organizing ball games like football, baseball, and cricket all across campus. Other sports became popular as well, like rowing, and as the sports grew and as the student interest grew, students started to realize that they had to create some type of organization to oversee these sports, thus giving birth to the University Sport Club, with the first one being formed at Yale in 1843 as a boat club. If we fast forward over the next 10 years, 
most of the universities across the country start to develop different university sport clubs to govern the different activities that are occurring. The two leading schools at this time are Harvard and Yale, and their prize sport club is the Boat Club. And so in 1852, when businessman named James Elkins was put in charge of promoting the new Boston to Montreal Railway, he had an idea to go to the Harvard and Yale Boat Club and ask them to come and compete in a rowing exhibition. As part of his proposal, he agreed that if both schools came and competed, he would pay their entire cost. Well, the deal was too good to turn down. And so in 1852, both Harvard and Yale ended up coming out. And while only one day of races actually occurred due to the weather, it is a significant event because it marked the first ever inter-collegiate athletic competition. You see, up until this point, all of the athletic contests that were occurring were just between students at the same school in what we call intramural sports or intra-collegiate athletics. However, this event was the first time two schools competed against each other in an athletic competition. The significance of this one race cannot be undersold, as not only did it mark the first intercollegiate athletic competition, but it put the idea in other students' minds that they could compete against other schools as well in whatever intramural sports they were currently playing. And so following the 1852 race, we start to see a new form of college sport emerge. Universities and sport clubs at those universities started to set up competitions with other schools. In order to do this, they actually had to create leagues and athletic associations to create rules to govern all teams and make sure each university was following the same guidelines. The first of these athletic associations was the Rowing Association of American Colleges, which formed in 1871. It was soon followed in 1873 by the Intercollegiate Football Association. Other associations continued to pop up in college sport, still controlled and ran by students at all levels, became an important part of the college student experience. However, as sport associations and competitions continued to grow and sport became more and more important to students, faculty started to have more and more issues with it. They noticed that sport was distracting students from their studies and promoting indecent and unethical behavior, all of which they said was in direct contrast to the stated goals of higher education. So what did the faculty do? They took control. They began to form their own university athletic committees made up only of faculty members, the first of which formed at Harvard in the 1880s. And then they would join these university committees together with committees from other universities and form conferences. The idea being that these conferences now had oversight over the intercollegiate athletic competitions instead of the student-led athletic associations. This gave the faculty the ability to institute policies and rules to deal with the number of issues that they had seen. The changes didn't stop there. In the late 1800s and early 1900s, university presidents started to get involved in college athletics as well. As Ronald Smith described, quote, presidents found that athletics lent them a vehicle for advertising their institution with little cost and could serve as a means to attract positive attention to a university, end quote. 
former students and alumni groups, and even the university governing boards also began to take notice of athletic competitions, and they started to feel pride when their university athletic teams did well. And so they started to put pressure on university presidents to establish winning programs. If the president did this, they stood to gain popularity amongst these key stakeholder groups, raising the profile of the school and themselves, all of which helped them generate monies for the university and do their job. The problem was, the presidents took over college sports just as an abundance of issues kept popping up. For example, since the very beginning of sport, the students sought to define who was eligible to compete in the contest. They developed the athletic associations to help establish that and to set uniform sets of rules that govern the individual sports and set guidelines that governed everything around them. When the faculty took over governance, they still had to deal with these issues, but they also added the issue of sport distracting students from their studies and the unethical and unbecoming behavior that they had noticed. So as you can imagine, when the presidents finally take over control from the faculty, all of these issues still exist and new ones continue to pop up. It's around this time, university teams are starting to go out and pay locals or well-known athletes to come and play for their team, sometimes for a whole season or sometimes just for a game. A lot of the time, these individuals that they were paying never even attended the university. Other issues like college presidents spending large amounts of money to build stadiums and gymnasiums to house the athletic competitions began to come about as well as more and more people began to see the concerns of the faculty as legitimate and thus question why large amounts of money were being spent on athletics when that money could be used by the academic sectors of the universities. But maybe the biggest and the most pressing issues university presidents faced in taking over college sports were the multiple scandals related to the brutality of the game of football. The scandals, including the death and maiming of multiple student-athletes, forced universities to take a serious look at the sport of football and all other college sports and either reform them or remove football and potentially all sports from the college campus. In trying to make a determination on which route they should go, 62 colleges and universities from around the country gathered together in 1905 to discuss reform. At that meeting, they decided to form a new organization with the purpose of governing all college sports, an organization that they called the Intercollegiate Athletic Association of the United States, which five years later in 1910 was renamed the National Collegiate Athletic Association or the NCAA. Now, the stated purpose of this new organization was to, quote, regulate and supervise collegiate athletics through the United States so that they could be maintained on an ethical plane in keeping with the dignity and high purpose of education, end quote. However, the reality was that the NCAA was formed to curb the violence of football so that it would stay on campus and universities could continue to attract large number of spectators to games and get large gate receipts. The big problem with the NCAA after its forming was that outside of the power to create standardized rules for the game of football, they had very little other authority. Yes, the schools that were in the NCAA would get together annually to discuss different issues and problems and set quote-unquote bylaws for college sports, but the NCAA didn't have any power to enforce their own bylaws, making them pretty much pointless. The bylaws basically just served as recommendations for what colleges and universities should do. 
And so the obligation to regulate college athletics fell on to the athletic conferences. Remember, these conferences started as sports-specific student associations and then transformed when faculty and presidents took control into collections of like institutions in a geographically similar area designed to regulate athletic competitions between the schools within that conference. Conferences were in charge of setting the schedule for game and events. They made sure everyone was operating on an equal playing field and following the same guidelines. And these conferences actually predated the NCA, so they were well set up and designed to do this in theory. Conferences began all the way back in 1884. In fact, by the time the NCA formed in 1905, you had three major conferences already in place. The Southern Intercollegiate Athletic Association, which formed in 1884, the Western Conference, which later renamed itself the Big Ten, and the Northwest Conference. And then, right after the NCA formed, several new conferences popped up as well with the same purpose as those that we already mentioned. Given that almost all NCA universities were also in conferences, and that the conferences were smaller than the NCA and geographically situated, the regulation of athletics was passed along to them, as it was thought that they would have more power to actually enforce the bylaws, and that they could create rules that were more situated and specific to those institutions that were involved. The problem? While they had the power to enforce the rules they came up with, they had little to no power to investigate universities to determine if a violation of the rules actually occurred. So basically what happened is the NCAA is formed to regulate college sport and make sure it not only matches up with the purpose of higher education, but also makes sure all the stakeholders involved, including students, coaches, university presidents, etc., that all of those individuals act in an ethical manner and are kept safe while playing sports. But the NSA was given almost no power over institutions that they were trying to organize. They could only suggest what universities should do since they had no ability to punish schools for not complying. The power to punish fell to the athletic conferences who also made their own rules, but they had almost no power to investigate if a school broke the rules, which means college sport was reliant on individual schools themselves to make and follow their own rules. This is a practice that actually became known as the home rule. As you might be thinking by now, wow, this sounds like a pretty messed up situation. You make an organization to regulate, but you give them no regulatory power. How does that work? And you'd be right. But you have to remember, at this time in America and around the world, creating organizations to regulate and control sport, organizations like the NCAA, that was a pretty new idea. The first real baseball league was formed in 1871. The first soccer or football organization wasn't formed until 1888. The American football leagues, those weren't starting to be formed until the 1890s, just 10 to 20 years before the NCAA. Before these type of leagues existed, people from different cities or sports clubs would just get together and play sports with little regulations, oftentimes changing rules from game to game or from location to location. The creation of these leagues marked a transition in sport history into what we considered the modern era. And so yes, what happened in the early days of the NCAA might not make a lot of sense, but as the years passed, they slowly started to transform themselves and grow as an organization. This transformation really began and centered 
around what the organization saw as the two most pressing issues. Issues that are still relevant to our conversation today. The first one being the notion of amateurism and eligibility of athletes. The second one being the growing commercialization of college sports. If we focus on that first one, the MCA first defined amateur athletes in 1911 as, quote, one who enters and takes part in athletic contests purely in obedience to the play impulses or for the satisfaction of purely play motives and for the exercise training and social pleasures derived from sport, end quote. To help maintain amateur ideals, the NCAA stipulated those participating on athletic teams entered college for academic and not athletic purposes. However, issues of providing athletes with scholarships for the athletic participation, having athletes, particularly baseball and basketball players, pay to play in summer leagues, and having paid professional college coaches often led to debates among institutions, conferences, and the NCAA leaders about the definition in place of amateur athletics in college. The commercialization of college athletics dates back to the first Harvard-Yale crew meet in which James Elkins paid the expenses for the competing institutions. In 1903, commercialization was symbolized by Harvard building the first concrete stadium to house their football team. Other institutions soon followed suit and began building large stadiums as a means to garner more money from ticket sales with the goal of subsidizing the cost of their athletic programs and, to a degree, the universities. In 1921, the NSA grew its objective in arguably the level of commercialization by beginning to offer national championships, the first of which was held in the sport of track and field. Most notable to the growth of commercialization was the addition of a national championship in men's basketball in 1939 and the large broadcasting right deals that followed. While these issues continued to grow over time, the structure and purpose of the NCA from the start made it almost impossible to have a non-commercialized form of amateur athletics. As F.W. Marvel noted in 1919, quote, We are told by college officials that we must conduct our sports and play along amateur lines, but we must finance them along the lines that are purely commercial and professional, end quote. In 1948, the issues of commercialization and amateurism continued to haunt the NCA. So the organization began to institute certain bylaws, most notably a bylaw called the Sanity Code. This rule sought to alleviate the proliferation of exploitative practices in the recruitment of student-athletes. Furthermore, it set the structure for college amateur athletics. For example, it provided the payment of athletic tuition in the form of athletic scholarships. It noted that hiring professional coaches was acceptable and defined other aspects that had previously been in question. It also allowed the NCA and the newly created Compliance Committee and Fact-Finding Committees to have enforcement power for the first time so they could punish individuals who were actually violating the NCA bylaws. Though these sanity codes were later replaced, 1948 marked a change in the NCA as they moved from this debating society to a legislative and enforcement organization. Another major change occurred in 1951, 
when the NCAA began an experimental TV plan for college football, which was followed in 1952 by the creation of a television committee to, quote, regulate television contracts for all of its members' colleges, end quote. This TV plan reflected just how far the commercialization of college sport had come and just how important it was to the survival of sports. Looking back into the 1930s and 40s, college football began to be seen as a major money-making tool, a tool that not only helped pay for the operations of the football team and athletic department, but also helped contribute to the operating budget of the school. As the famous football coach, Glenn Pop Warner, explained in a 1933 article, quote, a big game will sometimes net nearly $200,000 for each of the competing teams. And an outstanding money-making team with a good schedule could earn the better part of $1 million in a football season over only three months. Football at many institutions has been Santa Claus, not only for the other sports such as baseball, basketball, track, and rowing, but also for the whole education plan in some instances, end quote. As such, when in-person attendance started to decrease across the country in 1949, falling by a mere 1.3%, universities started to worry, and they turned to television and blamed them. They felt that having games on TV afforded people the opportunity to watch the games for free at home, making it less likely for them to pay money to come to the games and resulting in lower attendance and less money. While schools did make some money from negotiating their own TV deals, the vast majority of their money came from people attending games in person. And so in 1951, the NCAA put into place this TV plan. The plan was approved by a vote of 161 to 7, and according to USSportHistory.com, quote, it, the TV plan, limited live broadcasts of football games to 20 that season, restricted the number of times a team could appear on TV, and included a blackout mechanism to prevent televised games from affecting game attendance, end quote. The new plan also made it so that the NCAA controlled all the TV negotiations and then divided up the revenue made from selling the rights amongst all the schools, thus taking control of the process out of the hands of the individual schools and limiting the amount of games that they could be seen on TV in a given season. While a large number of schools approved of this and felt it actually helped them keep their in-person attendance high, other schools like Notre Dame University, most notably Oklahoma, didn't. And not just the University of Oklahoma, but the whole state. The state actually went as far as passing a resolution stating, quote, that college football was a public good and that many fans were unable to attend games on account of the size or distance from the stadium and other physical circumstances. It further noted all loyal Oklahomas like to see their university team in action, end quote. What followed was years of back and forth between Oklahoma and the NCA, with the university being stuck in the middle. State senators tried to get the Department of Justice to investigate the TV committee, claiming they were employing unlawful coercion and that they, the NCA, operated as an illegal monopoly. Eventually, Oklahoma gave in and agreed to follow the NCA's policies. According to Jeffrey Montez Diosier, the NCA initially sold the broadcast rights in 1951, for $679,800. 
And then in 1961, they resold them for $3.1 million. Ten years later, that was up to $12 million. And then ten years later in 1981, they sold the rights again for $31 million. While this might seem like considerable money, many of the elite schools were not happy with what they felt were inadequate amounts of money that they were getting from the NCAA deal. And so in 1977, the 62 elite football schools in the country got together and formed the College Football Association, or CFA. The CFA believed that the NCAA TV deal was limiting how many times a school could appear on TV and their ability to make profits. The NCAA responded to the forming of this association by opening up the TV rights negotiation in 1982 to three networks, ABC, CBS, and TBS, instead of just the previous one, which significantly increased the amount of revenue they were able to get in their negotiations, taking it all the way from the $31 million they had negotiated in the previous year up to $64.8 million. While it might appear that the NCAA was giving in to the CFA, the member schools still felt that they could get more money and not have to share it with as many schools if they worked together on their own contracts. So the 62 CFA schools began negotiating their own television deal with NBC, a contract that allowed for more games to be on TV than the NCAA's contract and a contract that would increase the revenue of each of the member schools in the CFA. In response to the NBC contract, the NCAA announced any school that was a member of the CFA and a part of the new NBC broadcast deal would be subject to sanctions. All of this back and forth between the CFA and the NCAA sparked two schools, the University of Georgia and the University of Oklahoma, to bring a lawsuit against the NCAA and challenge the legality of the NCAA controlling the TV rights for all college football. Their claim that, quote, the controls exercised by the NCAA over the televising of college football games violated Section 1 of the Sherman Antitrust Act, end quote. So after its humble beginnings in 1905, with a purpose of curving the violence of college football and maintaining the dignity and purpose of higher education, the NCAA saw a gradual transformation to a rulemaking society that governed and regulated all aspects of college sports, including offering championships, deciding who's eligible to play, and controlling all aspects of commercialization within sport. It wasn't until colleges realized just how much control over commercialization was limiting their earning potential that they finally started to fight back in the courts, choosing, as other sport leagues had, most notably in the 1922 Federal Baseball Club case, to claim that the existing governance of sport was an illegal trust or monopoly and that they were using their power to illegally restrict trade of others. The big difference between the 1984 NCA versus Board of Regents of the University of Oklahoma and the federal baseball case in 1922 was the final outcome that was reached. Both made it all the way to the Supreme Court. And if you recall from the federal baseball lawsuit that we discussed in part one of this podcast, the Supreme Court ruled that Major League Baseball was neither interstate nor commerce and thus not subject to the controls of the Sherman Antitrust Act. However, in 1984, the Supreme Court assessed the issue in a much different way. Rather than examining 
the arguments of interstate and commerce as the federal baseball club lawsuit did in 1922. The Supreme Court in this case used the rule of reason to assess the anti-competitive versus pro-competitive arguments for the NCAA having complete control over the broadcasting of university football games. In first looking at the anti-competitive argument, they found that the NCAA had restricted trade in the quote-unquote market, meaning the market of live college football television, in multiple ways, noting that the NCAA's TV plan restricted schools from being able to go into an open market and negotiate their own TV deals and restricted how often a team could appear on TV, both of which limited the earning potentials of the universities. This also had an effect on driving up the overall price in the market for the TV plan, which had a further anti-competitive effect on consumers. The Oklahoma Board of Regents argued that using the rule of reason analysis, you could conclude that such hurt to the customer, to the fans, and the university was self-evident. The argument then fell on the NCA to prove the pro-competitive aspects of the plan outweighed the anti. They relied on a claim that they were acting as a joint venture to assist schools in the marketing of broadcasting rights, and thus, they were actually helping schools, not harming them. Furthermore, the NCA went back to the origins of the plan in the 1950s and stated that it was designed to protect live attendance and therefore did not restrict the marketplace, but rather helped it to stay strong. Finally, they argued that the plan helped maintain competitive balance among the schools in the NCA as it assured an equal distribution of money across all football schools, thus keeping some teams from generating substantial sums of money while others struggled to garner any, leading to a potential imbalance in college programs. In this manner, they said that the plan protected competition in the marketplace rather than hurt it. In the end, though, the courts ruled with the universities and against the NCAA. They noted you could not draw the direct connection between the live audience and the television audience as the TV experience is not aimed at the same group. Furthermore, they shut down the argument that the TV plan created balance in money generations as they said quite accurately that television contracts are only one source of income and schools can go and generate income through a number of other ways, such as alumni donations, increasing tuition rates, and other such activities that aren't regulated by the NSA at all. Finally, the Supreme Court stated that the NSA is not a joint venture working to help market broadcast rights, but rather that it is a governing body whose purpose is to regulate sport. So what does all this mean? Well, in short, that the NCA was found to be in violation of Section 1 of the Sherman Antitrust Act, and thus the schools in the CFA, and all other schools for that matter, could go off and negotiate their own TV deals as they saw fit. The result of the lawsuit? Obviously, a continued growth in the commercialization of college sports and even more antitrust claims against the NCA. In fact, only four years later, after the Board of Regents' decision in 1984, another case was filed against the NCA, again claiming that they were in violation of antitrust law. The case is labeled McCormack versus NCA, and it was the result of the Southern Methodist University or SMU football program death penalty that happened in the 1980s. 
If you've never heard of the SMU scandal that led to the first and really only NCAA death penalty, I would recommend that you go back and you watch the 30 for 30 docu-series called Pony Excess, which takes an in-depth look at what happened. But for those of you who don't know what happened or just need a quick refresher, let's take a second to summarize what was going on at SMU so we all are on the same page when we're breaking down the lawsuit. The SMU football program was one of the best college football programs in the country, dating all the way back to 1935 when they won a national championship. From there, they built a storied history, winning 10 conference titles. They were in the old Southwestern Conference. They had numerous All-Americans and even had the 1949 Heisman Trophy winner, Doak Walker. The success continued all the way into the 80s, when they finished second in the nation in 1982, even though they were the only undefeated team in the country. The question started to become, how is this small private school of only 6,000 students able to recruit some of the top football talent in the country every year and continuously compete against the larger state schools throughout not only Texas, but the entire United States? To answer this question, we don't have to go far. All we have to do is look at what was happening in the mid-1900s in Dallas, the city in which SMU was located. Around that time, Dallas started to become a growing metropolis and a place for a number of big businessmen who were making fortunes in oil and real estate industry to live. These businessmen almost all had a favorite football team they supported, which led to them donating big money to the schools and the programs. University donors, or better termed boosters, became an integral part to the continual growth of commercialization in college sports and the quote-unquote arms race that was occurring. This arms race pitted school against school in a competition to recruit and get the best athletes to attend your universities. How do you prove that you have a better school than someone else? Well, maybe you show that you have a newer or bigger or better stadium or other facilities. Maybe you have better equipment or a more successful team, or you have more connections to the professional ranks or whatever it is. But the point is, during this time, schools were beginning to do whatever it took to get the best players on their team to win more games. Why? Because as we pointed out, when the presidents first started taking over college sports, winning games generated a sense of pride in donors and alumni, and those individuals would then donate money to the school. So winning became a way to generate more money for the schools so then they could go get even better players and generate more money. And as you can see, this all became a vicious cycle that first centered on getting rich businessmen to donate lots of money to your university. But with Dallas right next door to SMU, there were plenty of big money businessmen for the school to go after. The problem became that the donors started having a bigger and bigger hand in the process and they became too involved to the point where instead of giving money to the school to help build new resources, they just took their money and went straight to high school football players to try to get them to choose SMU over other schools. They were handing out checks, duffel bags full of cash, cars, and God knows what else just to try to sway high school football players to come to SMU and help the football team win. You might be asking, well, why would these rich businessmen become involved in all these shady dealings? In reality, they just wanted SMU and the teams that they supported to win. So that way they had bragging rights 
over their other rich business friends who donated money to other schools. While this practice of giving recruits money and other gifts was not new to college sports, remember, paying college athletes and determining who was eligible and who was not, these were core issues that the NCAA faced back in the early 1900s. The way it was happening at SMU and with their recruits continued to get more and more egregious to the point where the NCAA had no choice but to step in and act. At first, the NCAA just placed SMU under probation after finding that it was in violation of many NCAA rules, most notably violating NCAA rules on paying athletes due to the fact that the NCAA found a slush fund at SMU that was used to give money to football players. They also banned SMU from playing in any bowl games for a year. However, as issues continued to mount during the years, it became clear this punishment was not enough. And when the NCAA learned that SMU athletic officials paid a player $25,000 to sign and play football with the team, they said enough's enough. The NCAA relied on a new rule called the Repeat Violator Rule that stated that if a school was found to be guilty of two major violations in five years, it could be banned from competing in sports for up to two years. To make a long story short, the punishment that the NCAA handed down after all the investigations were complete consisted of canceling SMU's 1987 college football season, banning all home games for SMU in 1988, and allowing them to play seven away games so that way other schools that they were scheduled to play wouldn't be hurt by that lost home game revenue. They also extended the probation that SMU was on up until 1990, They banned them from playing in any bowl games and any live TV games until 1989. They reduced college scholarships that they were allowed to offer, as well as a few other penalties. Taken all together, the program was essentially killed, leading to the media saying that the NCAA handed down a death penalty to the school. So where does the law and antitrust actions come into play here? Well... As you can imagine, SMU alumni and football players didn't just take the NCAA's decision to kill their program lying down, and they decided to bring a class action suit against the organization, claiming their ruling and their actions placed illegal restraints on trade in violation of Section 1 of the Sherman Antitrust Act, and that the NCAA was instituting an illegal boycott, thus violating Section 2 of the Sherman Antitrust Act. More specifically, the suit argued that limiting players' ability to make money by saying they cannot make anything outside of their scholarship limited their earning potential and thus restricted their access to an open and free market. Thus, in creating and implementing the rules they had, the NCA was engaging in a form of price fixing, which they argued was a clear violation of Section 1. Furthermore, they said the NCA imposed sanctions on them in an unequal fashion and that the NCAA's not allowing other schools to play SMU amounted to them exercising their monopolistic powers over college sports and making them be boycotted. They claim these violations of the Sherman Antitrust Act, quote, have destroyed the football players' careers and caused the cheerleaders considerable emotional anguish and distress, end quote. And they argued this because they said that it was depriving these individuals the opportunity to conduct their football and cheerleading activities at games. The case made its way all the way to the Fifth Circuit Court of Appeals, who heavily relied on the Board of Regents case from 1984. In first dealing with the claim on price fixing, 
The court had to consider whether the pro-competitive justification for limiting players' ability to earn money balanced out with the anti-competitive argument that not allowing students to make money more than their scholarship limited their ability to make money. Here, the court noted that in sporting organizations like the NCAA, some rules are needed to govern competition and make sure there is a balanced playing field. The court added that schools making up the organizations must agree to act uniformly and abide by these rules, for if every school just went out and did whatever they wanted, there wouldn't be any leagues or competition. Therefore, they said the NCAA rules, like banning certain schools from competing against others, isn't a boycott, and certain rules like stipulating how much money an athlete can earn isn't a form of price fixing. Or as the court put it, Quote, in order to preserve the character and quality of the product, athletes must not be paid. They must attend classes and the likes. And the integrity of the product cannot be preserved except by mutual agreement. If an institution adopted such restrictions unilaterally, its effectiveness as a competitor on the playing field might soon be destroyed. Thus, the NCAA plays a vital role in enabling college football to preserve its character, and as a result, enables a product to be marketed which might otherwise be unavailable, end quote. The quote went on to further discuss the price-fixing claim, saying, quote, The NCAA markets college football as a product distinct from professional football. The eligibility rules create the product and allow its survival in the face of commercializing pressures. The goal of the NCA is to integrate athletics with academics. Its requirements reasonably further this goal. In other words, the court found that the rule limiting the ability of student-athletes to make money helped distinguish it from pro football and thus created a distinct product that helped it compete in a crowded marketplace and create a balanced playing field for competition, meaning the rules clearly helped competition rather than hurt it. In the end, the class action lawsuit failed and the NCAA was found to be not in violation of the Sherman Antitrust Act, specifically in regards to setting and enforcing rules such as placing sanctions on schools and limiting the amount of money college students can make. However, this case didn't end the practice of individual challenges to the NCAA rules or claims that the NCAA had these rules which were anti-competitive. Just four years later, 1992, another lawsuit was filed, this time by a student athlete named Braxton Banks, challenging the NCAA rules on eligibility in amateurism. Banks had received a scholarship to play football at the University of Notre Dame in 1986 and proceeded to play numerous games over the course of his first three years in school. He had nagging injuries throughout though, so he decided to sit out his senior year and get healthy so he would be fully recovered for the NFL draft. After deciding to enter the 1990 NFL draft, he met with multiple pro teams and even participated in the NFL tryouts, also known as the Combine in Indianapolis. His performance was subpar though, and he failed to get drafted or to sign with the team as an undrafted free agent. As a result, he wanted to go back to Notre Dame and to play out his final season of eligibility. But two NCA rules, Rule 12.2.4.2, called the No Draft Rule, and Rule 12.3.1, called the No Agent Rule, limited his ability to do that. The No Draft Rule stated that an individual loses amateur status in a particular sport when the individual asks to be placed on the draft list or the supplemental draft list of that professional sport. 
The no agent rule states that an individual shall be ineligible for participation in intercollegiate sport if he or she ever has agreed orally or in writing to be represented by an agent for the purpose of marketing his or her athletics abilities or reputation in that sport. So what did Banks do? He sues the NCA, claiming that their rules are in violation of the Sherman Antitrust Act. While Banks eventually loses the lawsuit due primarily to the fact that he failed to provide an explanation of the anti-competitive impact of the two rules in question, this suit shows another case where athletes tried to allege that the NCAA restricted trade with their bylaws and thus were in violation of antitrust laws. It also helps to lay a solid legal precedent for how the courts view claims that various NCA bylaws violate the Sherman Antitrust Act. After Banks, the courts continued this tradition of ruling for the NCA in suits like Gaines versus NCA, Smith versus NCA, and Jones versus NCA. While each of these cases were slightly different, Gaines challenged the NCA NFL draft rules much like Banks had, Smith challenged NCA rules regarding graduate student transfer eligibility, and Jones challenged NCA rules after losing his eligibility as a result of receiving money to play hockey. So while each of these cases was slightly different, the outcome was always the same. Regardless of the differences, the rules being challenged, or the legal questions, the court continued to rule for the NCA, stating that it did not violate antitrust law. As the judge in the Smith decision wrote, the Sherman Antitrust Act, quote, does not reach the actions of the NCA in setting eligibility standards where NCA eligibility rules bar student athletes at their member institutions from participating in intercollegiate sports, end quote. The court in the Jones decision added, quote, the actions of the NCA in setting eligibility guidelines have no nexus in the commercial or business activities in which the defendant might engage, end quote. Even though the court seemed fairly unified in their views of the NCA bylaws, other antitrust cases kept being filed against the association, hoping to hearken back to the Board of Regents of Oklahoma ruling in the Supreme Court. In 1998, one such case struck gold. Law versus the National Collegiate Athletic Association. Just like with the previous lawsuits, the law case challenged an existing bylaw. However, unlike all the suits that we've talked about that the NCA won, the law case didn't deal with a student-athlete eligibility issue. Rather, it dealt with a rule that was affecting coaches. You see, throughout the 1980s, as we've mentioned in the SMU case, college sport was going through a substantial growth in commercialization and an ever-expanding arm race between universities. Colleges were spending more and more money on stadiums and equipment and everything you can think of in hopes of attracting the best possible athletes, as we talked about. This included paying college coaches more and more money. By 1991, schools were spending so much trying to secure not just the best head coaches, but the best assistant coaches that the NCAA finally felt they had to step in. The organization felt that the vast sums of money being spent was creating an unequal playing field, leading to the rich getting even richer and created an ever-growing divide between big state schools and everyone else, particularly in the sport of basketball. In an attempt to create more balance, the NCAA passed a new rule that stated one coach in each sport outside of football had to be labeled a, quote, restricted earnings coach, end quote. 
and that that coach was limited to making only $16,000 a year. There were some other caveats to the rule that allowed these coaches to make a bit more money, but the important thing here is really just that the NCAA passed a rule restricting the earnings of a group of coaches, and unsurprisingly, the coaches were not happy. So the coaches filed a class action lawsuit claiming that the rule is in violation of Section 1 of the Sherman Antitrust Act. They claimed that the rule limited their ability to earn money in a free and open market, which had an adverse effect or anti-competitive effect on coaching, and that this effect outweighed any pro-competitive benefits that the NCAA could argue. The court agreed with the coach's analysis of the anti-competitive effect of the rule and turned to the NCAA to hear their arguments for why the rule was needed and the good that it did for the consumer. The NCAA's main argument? They said that the rule helped subvert some of the rising costs of college sports, thus helping to keep mid-sized and smaller schools from having to pay the rising costs of coaching salaries and keeping them from potential financial ruin. Thus, the rule was helping competition by making sure teams and athletic programs would still be around to compete. While this might seem like a legitimate pro-competitive argument, meaning that the court then would turn to weigh the pros versus the cons, The court noted that the NCAA failed to show any proof that the rising salaries were in fact putting college athletics in jeopardy. Without any proof of the claim, the argument began to fall apart. So not only did the court find the rule to be anti-competitive in that it limited the amount of money a coach could make, thus fixing prices and the market, the court also found no pro-competitive rationale for the rule, meaning that the NCA was found to be in violation of the Sherman Antitrust Act and liable for $22.3 million in damages. Not only was the NCA faced with antitrust challenges from within, meaning from coaches, players, and schools, as we've discussed, but they also were facing challenges from external companies who were filing lawsuits claiming that they were in violation of the Sherman Antitrust Act. For example, in 2004, Worldwide Basketball and Sports Tours, Inc. filed a claim against the NCAA claiming that an NCAA rule known as the 2-4 and rule restricted free trade and thus violated Section 1 of the Act. The rule stipulated that college basketball teams were only allowed to participate in a certified tournament once a year and twice every four years. Postseason play was not counted in this rule, with the goal of the rule being to limit the number of games played per season out of concern for the student welfare and give lesser known schools more opportunities to play in desirable tournaments. Moreover, the NCAA stated that they were becoming, quote, concerned that the more powerful basketball schools, i.e. members of the Big Six conferences, were disproportionately taking advantage of certified events, end quote. The rule had the desired effect for the NCA as they saw a 43% reduction in exempt tournament games, a 32% reduction in tournaments, and a 3.3 decrease in the number of games Division I teams were playing. Worldwide basketball and sports tours argued these reductions in numbers proved that the NCA was limiting the output of a product, thus fixing the market and breaching antitrust laws. Why did worldwide basketball tours care? because they were one of those organizations that were putting on these tournaments. And the new bylaw, they said, reduced their ability to draw teams into their tournaments and thus make money. The courts didn't see it that way, though. They noted, quote, 
The NCA functions quite differently than traditional combinations designed to reduce output and limit competition. Courts have recognized that the NCA has important rulemaking functions, such as establishing the rules of the games and protecting the welfare of student-athletes. While acting in this rulemaking capacity, the NCA is not subject to traditional antitrust limitations, end quote. So in the end, the Sixth Circuit Court of Appeals ruled for the NCA. While the NCA later dropped the 4-2 rule, this was yet another case in which the NCAA was able to fight back against the Sherman Antitrust Act claims and show that they were not in violations of the law. All of this brings us to the current situation that's making its way through the federal court system and all the way up to the United States Supreme Court. In the third and final part of our antitrust series, we will tackle not only the current case being heard by the United States Supreme Court, known as Allison versus NCA, but we will discuss the other antitrust lawsuits against the NCA that have dealt with student-athlete compensation that are currently being heard. All of this will lay the groundwork for us to better understand how the court might rule and what effect that ruling might have on the future of college athletics. Hopefully, in today's podcast, though, you've learned a little bit more about not just the history and evolution of the NCA and antitrust legislation, but also about how the two areas inevitably are linked. Given that the NCAA has grown into a massive organization that seeks to govern all aspects of college athletics with little to no competition, it's easy to see why they have faced so many antitrust challenges. As we saw today, whenever they make a new rule that adversely affects one of their major stakeholders, they are bound to have that rule challenged. Historically, the courts have said that if the rule is put in place to regulate the eligibility of athletes, the pro-competitive arguments, that is, to establish an equal playing field, outweighs any restraints or market fixing. This was the case in Worldwide Basketball and Sports Tours Inc. vs. NCA, Banks vs. NCA, Gaines vs. NCA, Smith vs. NCA, Jones vs. NCA, and McCormack vs. NCA. Each of these lawsuits we discuss challenge various aspects of the NCA bylaws that negatively affected student-athletes, but helped maintain balance and fair competition, and thus the rules in question were all found to comply with antitrust law. However, when the bylaws restricted the ability of universities or coaches to earn money in an open market, the courts found such rules to be a form of price fixing that violated Section 1 of the Sherman Antitrust Act. This was the case in both NCA versus the Board of Regents of the University of Oklahoma and Law versus NCA. So what does all this mean for the current litigation that challenges rules and bylaws that arguably fix the amount of money student athletes can make from their scholarships? Come back and listen to episode 58 of the Sport Professor podcast to find out. Until then though, if you have any questions about the NCA or the application of antitrust law to it, please feel free to reach out to us on Instagram at the Sport Professor. Follow us and the podcast to stay up to date on the latest episodes and content. Until next time, though, we hope you enjoyed this episode of the Sport Professor Podcast.